Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. For today's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Cam Harvey, professor of finance at Duke University. Cam, thanks for coming. Great to be on the show. So you've written extensively on all kinds of financial topics. You've co-authored some of the papers we've been talking about in this series, including the best strategies for the worst crises and the best strategies for inflationary times. But you've also written a paper that says, be skeptical of asset management research. So to kick off, I think it would be good just to have a conversation about why trend works. And specifically, why is this a genuine investment strategy from an academic standpoint and not some kind of passing fad or a factor that's been disproven? So let me start by talking about uh, this paper that people should be skeptical about asset management uh, research. And I've spent the last decade really calling out some research practices that are pretty questionable. Uh, I've detailed that 400 so-called factors have been published in academic uh, journals. And and to me, there's just like no way there are 400 long-short factors that deliver significant alpha. It is a, like a data mining expedition that people are on. And part of the message that I try to convey is that you need to have some economic foundation for a strategy. Uh, if it is purely a data mine strategy, the hurdle is so high for it to be real. So it's got to be some sort of foundation. It needs to make sense. And unfortunately, many of these strategies, they look good. Uh, they might be uh, a story spun ex post after the fact that might make uh, a little bit of sense, but that's not the way uh, to do research. And unfortunately, many of these so-called strategies are not going to work in live trading. And there's plenty of academic research that shows after something is published, then the performance actually uh, is degraded or goes away. There's a couple of papers that are out there that are really interesting on ETF launches. So with the ETFs, and these are kind of the act of factor-based uh, ETFs or smart beta uh, ETFs, that if you look at the backtest, um, which are generally available, they look great. And then as soon as the application is filed to the SEC, the performance is flat. The excess performance, there's nothing there. So, so this is not just an academic issue. This is also a practical issue. Now, you asked about uh, trend following, and trend following actually is interesting because there is an economic foundation for trend following. And if you think about how it works, uh, where uh, if markets are trending up, you're buying, and that's kind of like replicating uh, dynamically uh, a long call option. And if markets are, are trending down, you're selling. And that's kind of like replicating a long put option. So you put that together, you get a straddle-like uh, payoff. And it's no surprise with the straddle that when times are very bad, 
the straddle's going to pay off. And that's what I've demonstrated with my papers, um, with many colleagues at Mann, uh, including Otto that you mentioned, uh, that the trend strategy, given its economic foundation, should pay off in crisis uh, times. And that's exactly what we find. And the level of payoff, of course, varies through time. Nothing is perfect here, um, but it is consistent with the theory. And that is a big uh, plus. You know, that's really interesting. We've been talking about creating convexity in, in some of our, our, our prior podcasts, but in a way where you're describing instead of buying a straddle where you'd go to the market and buy convexity, we're actually using trend to create convexity. Does that sound about right? That's exactly right. And this is really important for a portfolio uh, to add some convexity uh, because in bad times, at minimum, you want to do uh, better than your competitors that don't have any convexity uh, in uh, in their portfolio. And obviously, uh, the downside is the most painful. And to have a program in place that reduces that downside is something really important. Indeed, it's the entire motivation of my book um, with Otto and Sandy, a strategic uh, risk management, where we argue that in designing the portfolio, you need to take into account uh, the third moment, which is kind of like the downside risk, not just the expected return and the variance, and to layer on at the beginning not in an ad hoc way afterwards, but when you construct the portfolio, you inject certain strategies that have positive convexity. And in doing that, it reduces the downside uh, exposure of the portfolio. Now, some people just layer on, bolt on uh, strategies when markets uh, start to get uh, like bad, and it's too late. You need to do this at the beginning and do it in a way that is efficient and, and affordable. Yeah, I think that's right, too. You know, on our side, we frequently see tail hedgers come into the market around, you know, minus 10, 15 percent in, in equities when options are getting pretty expensive. You know, and let's face it, you know, the horse is kind of out of the barn. It's not quite at the glue factory yet, but things are getting expensive. And if you're going to be outsourcing that risk management to the options market for a price, well, that's probably not the most efficient way to run a portfolio. What you're describing to me is basically insourcing it, taking that responsibility and avoiding all that premium cost. At, at the beginning, and, and trend-following strategies have this ability, uh, and, and this is important. So I, I mentioned the economic foundations uh, of trend-following, but there's also lots of historical evidence. And in our book, Strategic Risk Management, we had actually two out of sample episodes. One when we're writing the book, and then uh, the COVID nineteen, um, what happened, and and we were able to to actually do some out of sample validation, and the evidence is consistent with the basic foundational idea. So this is something that is important for your portfolio, and we apply it in, in many different ways in this book, um, including rebalancing strategies, and, and other things that are really super important for successful asset management. And so how important do you think that is, that trend is multi-asset? What you don't want is 
a strategy that just works on one asset class uh, because it could be lucky, right? So you tried the strategy on many different assets. It works great for one asset. Well, that could just be random. So when you've got a strategy that's consistent and works across different asset classes, that, that tells you something about the viability of the strategy. Now, I said the mechanism might be a little different. Um, so when we say trend following, uh, that's a very general uh, term. So there's many different ways to construct the actual trend. And that might need some fine tuning depending upon uh, the particular asset that you're applying to. So for example, if the asset's highly volatile, uh, you might need uh, like a slower strategy. Um, and it depends upon autocorrelation properties and things like that um, to actually fine tune to individual uh, assets. So I, I think I'm gonna come back to the speed issue in a second. But in a way, I think this is somewhat related. So, you know, you mentioned 400 or however many fake factors in the world. And, you know, they're full of asset managers or academics interjecting some hypothesis that they want to sell or, or broadly disseminate. And the narrative might sound good on paper. But, you know, what you've described is that, you know, these aren't truly factors that are not really investment strategies. So I guess what I'm curious is, are trend managers vulnerable to this? You know, are there things that trend managers are out there doing that you think might look a little suspicious or a little optimized? Let me talk about the, the 400 factors first. And I mentioned that these factors are published in academic journals and that most of these factors are, are not real. Uh, for example, the academic research doesn't take into account transactions costs and as soon as you take that into account, you're going to haircut the alphas and potentially haircut them into negative territory. Uh, so, so most of these factors don't make any sense. They're purely academic. But many of them get packaged into ETFs. So a company might sell their strategy saying, oh, well, this was published in the Journal of Finance, therefore... It must be high quality, but the publication in the Journal of Finance could be flawed on multiple dimensions. So one dimension is that it could be a data mining expedition. So the finding could be lucky. And the second dimension I just mentioned, the real world transactions costs might not be taken into account. So for trend, uh, there are uh, situations where there could be overfitting. And let me give you an example of that. So suppose that you've got a very simple model where you're just looking at like a lagged return. And you look back one week and that doesn't work. Then you look back two weeks and that doesn't work that well. And then you go back one month and two months and three months. And finally, you get the, the best predictability using seven months and three days. Okay, so you try all of these possible legs and you've got this great performance with seven months and three days. So as soon as you choose the best back test, uh, I can almost guarantee that that will fail and disappoint 
out of sample. So this is just an example of overfitting. So you never take the best back test. And, and from an economic point of view, uh, a lag of seven months and three days, that makes no sense whatsoever. So, yeah, you're going to find something. If you try all of these lookbacks, you're going to find something that looks really good. So it's better to have a discipline and maybe go 12 months or one month or three months. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, but but to, to go through every single possible lookback and then just pick the best one, no, that's a bad way to do research. And unfortunately, you know, we see this happening. So changing gears a bit, yeah, you've been doing a little bit of work on crypto lately, speaking at conferences, writing books. You know, where do you see crypto fitting in the trend world, if it does at all? So I've been working on crypto for the last eight years. So this is not a new thing for me. I've been teaching this uh, for, for eight years. And yes, I recently published this book called uh, DeFi and the Future of Finance that looks at all of the potential advantages and also details the risks uh, of this new space. So this is very young in uh, this particular disruption, maybe 1% uh, into this, uh, this sort of change in the way that we think about finance. And opportunities uh, present themselves in a situation like that. So these markets are not particularly efficient. And when you've got uh, a market that's not particularly efficient, it is an ideal application uh, for a trend type of model. So, so many asset managers are actually using, for example, the Bitcoin or Ethereum futures to apply trend models and capture a premium that's based upon uh, that. So this, uh, this technology offers a lot of possibilities here. So um, right now, most asset managers are focused on trading like the futures. Uh, but now uh, we've got many different ways to get exposure, including the physical. And it's interesting, the way that this operates uh, is not the way that we usually think of trading. So for example, a stock, you decide where, where you're going to list. Is it NYSE? Is it NASDAQ? In the crypto space, there are hundreds of exchanges. And, uh, and you can, it, it basically, it's not your choice. People will just start uh, an exchange and list your token. There's so many possibilities here. Um, but, but let me give you one example that is kind of interesting. Um, and it's the flash loan example. Uh, and let me go through this because it's, to me, uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of this space. So a transaction in Ethereum can have many different steps. And there are many different exchanges out there. And it's possible that the same token is trading at different prices on two different exchanges. So let's do some arbitrage. 
but we're going to do some arbitrage in a very strange way in that we don't have any capital whatsoever. So this is the way the transaction works. Step one, I borrow some money. Step two, I take that money and buy the token on the exchange where the price is cheap. Step three, I sell the token on another exchange at a more expensive price. Step four, I pay back the loan. And step five, I keep the profit. And this is arbitrage. And it turns out that this loan is uncollateralized and it could be arbitrary size. You don't need to know who the counterparty is. It's got no duration and is risk-free. And how is it risk-free? Well, let me tell you that suppose uh, it unravels a different way. You borrow the money, you buy the cheap token, but by the time you sell on the other exchange, the price drops, so you sell it for less. So you take a loss. Step four, you can't pay back the loan. And as a result, the whole transaction fails. You go back to the original state before you borrowed anything. So that's what I mean by zero duration. It's a fascinating mechanism uh, of arbitrage in this space where effectively it means that these hundreds of decentralized exchanges are all linked together by arbitrage, which creates uh, like a giant network exchange. And again, there's so many possibilities here for applying simple strategies, whether it be arbitrage strategies or trend following strategies in this giant new uh, opportunity. I think occasionally trend will come under criticism because it's long equities in an uptrend. Are you particularly bothered by that in a sense that, you know, trend being long equities is effectively adding risk to a portfolio? Um, I'm not bothered by it at all. Um, of course, you need to take the overall portfolio into account. So there's different ways to implement the trend and it might be uh, using many different assets and some people actually prefer not to have that beta uh, against uh, equities. So there can be an implementation where you actually avoid that positive uh, beta. And that actually uh, can be customized. It delivers very similar properties, except you don't have that beta. So, so it is a criticism that can be addressed. It just depends upon the preferences of the actual investor. If they want zero beta, fine, we can do that. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking of is an equity investor. You know, frequently they cut risk into the uptrend to take profits and in some ways leave themselves under risks as markets recover or rallies, you know, extend beyond their own expectations. I suppose trend addresses that tendency to sell too early. So that's true. So this obviously has to do with just active asset management, asset allocation that's, that's tactical. Uh, this is a signal. Right? So it is telling us something about the conditionally expected return. So given where we are, what is the expected return? And then you use that information in terms of your asset management. So, so I talked about rebalancing. I talked about just adding a trend into your portfolio uh, to induce uh, some positive uh, convexity. But it's also possible just to use the trend signal as 
an asset allocation tool. So you're looking at your sector exposures. You've got trend models on sectors. It's telling you something about how sectors will do. Um, there is a new area of research in academic finance that looks at factor momentum. So you might be having a, like a multi-factor uh, sort of portfolio and the momentum uh, signals, the time series momentum or trend signals uh, could be very useful in dynamically uh, adjusting your factor exposures to take into account the persistence in some of these factor returns. So, so trend enters uh, the asset management um, problem in many, many different ways. So I want to turn a bit to your work on quote-unquote trend turning points. You've called this the Achilles heel of trend investing, the problem that in sudden shocks, trend is too slow to adjust and, and you know, may reduce positions after a big gap move. Can you talk about that a bit? That one of the big issues in trend following is choosing the speed of the actual model. And let me explain what I mean by that. So if you've got a model that's slow, which means it's looking back, let's say a year, then if something happens in the recent data, it's going to be mixed together with the other 11 months. And, and you actually might miss a turning point as a result, okay? So, so this is, uh, this is a, like a disadvantage of kind of the very slow, because it's not reactive. And you might, let's say, continue to be long when the market starts to go down and miss that, that turning point. Uh, on the other hand, if you've got a very fast system, let's say a one-month system, then you might actually be tricked by just noise in the data. So you get a positive return, you go long, but that was just uh, just like a random uh, sort of observation. And the noise um, really reduces the profitability of the very fast uh, system. So I've thought about this for a very long time. And uh, I guess the idea here is can we design a system that dynamically changes the speed? And that change depends upon economic uh, conditions. And I've got a paper that is forthcoming in the Journal of Financial Economics called Momentum Turning Points that actually makes some progress on this particular issue, where what we do is we divide uh, kind of the world into four uh, different states. We look at two different speeds. So the fast speed is a one-month look back. The slow speed is a 12-month uh, look back. And the four different states are a bull state, and that means that the past one-month return and the past 12-month return is positive. Uh, a bear state is kind of the opposite of that. The last month and the last year is negative. 
And then we look at two turning point states. So um, one turning point might be the, uh, the long-term or the 12-month return is a, uh, a positive return. And then the one month is a negative. And that could be a correction. So we call that correction. And then the fourth state is, uh, is kind of the opposite of that, where the 12-month uh, return is negative, but the one-month return is positive. And we call that rebound. Okay, so we can characterize the, um, all, every single return by these states. And what we notice is that if you look at the month after the state is declared, that there is a massive separation between the, uh, the realized returns after a bear state and the realized returns after the bull state. It is, it is, the difference is like 15%. And this is a real challenge to uh, the current academic theories. The, the academic theories say if you're in a, a very tough economic environment, the expected return should be positive to compensate the investor for this really bad time. And our paper shows the opposite. So it's caused a lot of soul searching uh, in the economics profession. Um, and, uh, and again, it's forthcoming, but part of what we do in this paper is to try to, uh, design a strategy for these two turning point states where you've got the correction and the rebound. And when you enter those states, you adjust the speed. So, uh, it, it's, I, I think, uh, I make some progress. Uh, and I think there's a lot more progress that can be made. Uh, the model that we present is a very simple model, but it does appear to be very promising. Uh, indeed, uh, it was interesting. We submitted the paper for review and we tested the model from, from 1969 uh, onwards. And the reviewer, Basically, this is what we think. Um, the reviewer says, well, they probably are showing the results from 1969 because it really works well. We've got data all the way back to 1926. Why didn't they show that? Um, so the reviewer collected the data going back to 1926 and applied our technique and found that it replicated. So basically using the old data, <laughs> it's like an out of sample test that they did for us. And, and, and this is uh, quite resilient and uh, it looks good across many different assets. So I think that this is, uh, it was described to me, I remember um, one of the first meetings I had at, um, at Man HL uh, and there was a discussion of speed and I said something like, oh, well, you should have dynamic speed depending upon economic conditions. And everybody looked at me and smiled and said, well, Cam, um, I'm not sure you realized, but that is the holy grail of trend following. Well, uh, anytime anybody says something like that to me, it gets my interest. So it's taken a while. I've made a little progress, and I think more progress can be made 
to improve the kind of reaction to trend following strategies to turning points. Turning points are, are a real challenge for a trend strategy. That's where uh, they usually fail. So anything that can reduce that failure rate uh, is a good thing for investors. It's really interesting. As a, as a practical matter, though, I think investors are still stuck with more or less a binary choice between fast and slow. Maybe there's some in the middle. You know, is there a continuum I should think of if I want more crisis protection or more return? You know, some kind of simplified matrix for the people who you know, haven't yet implemented trend and are trying to think about you know, what it is that they want out of the strategy and what speed is the right one? Well, my paper is available uh, on SSRN right now, so anybody can grab it. Uh, sorry to be self-promoting here. And, and implement is very easy uh, to actually uh, do the implementation for this. So, so it's not uh, like a binary uh, choice, uh, fast or slow. You can have something that is switching through time in, in a very uh, simple way. Uh, again, you need to be careful here. Um, and this is also documented in some of my papers with my main colleagues uh, on like crisis and the performance of different strategies. So the crises vary in terms of the actual behavior of asset returns in a crisis. So, so for example, if you've got a crisis that is very fast, like October 1987, uh, that's a real challenge for uh, regular trend-following uh, strategies. And, and the only way to get that uh, would be to have a very, very fast uh, strategy. And, um, and the slow strategies uh, could be very painful uh, during that. So, so again, it's not that uh, there's only one type of crisis. Some uh, particular crises are very slow-moving train wrecks where others are very rapid. So, so again, if you fine-tune the speed for one type of crisis, it might not be optimal for another type. And that's exactly the reason that you need to have dynamic speed. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, if we look at the last two crises, if we consider what we're in now in 2022, a crisis, you know, this one is a very much a slow-moving train wreck, and COVID was really the exact opposite. Yeah, in uh, March of 2020, yes. So from here, I guess I'm going to pop around a bit, and maybe it will seem a bit random in terms of questions. But you know, one thing investment banks are often talking about is crowding. You know, emails go out from strategists that talk about crowding and try to predict what systematic strategies might do. Is this something you think is real? Is it imagined? Do they have it right? And you know, maybe you just don't even look at it because it's sort of a garbage in, garbage out process that the banks are doing. Oh, I definitely look at it. Uh, indeed, I have a paper on crowding. Uh, again, it's on SSRN, uh, and it, it it takes a completely different approach. It, it looks at asset managers, and it looks at the difference in performance of uh, of funds that have like a single manager versus a team of managers. And the idea is that a single manager has only got so many ideas, and when funds come in, 
uh, those ideas get crowded. Whereas with a team, you've got, and, and assuming the team is a diverse team, you've got many more ideas and it's just less likely that you get a crowding of those ideas. So I believe crowding is something that is very real. Uh, indeed, uh, it, if you think about a particular strategy, uh, what could cause it to fail? So that's one way to, to kind of step back and, and think about this. So one thing we already talked about at the beginning, it could fail because it's been data mined and overfit in the backtest, and it was never going to work in the first place. Uh, it could fail because, and this is the second reason, you just encounter some bad luck. So it's a reasonable strategy. It's done well historically, but you're in a very bad luck run. You know, like value is a good example of that, where you've got like 10 years of, uh, of bad luck uh, before it turns around. It could also fail because the world changes. So there could be a structural reason that what worked in the past doesn't work uh, in the future. And that's, uh, if you recognize that structural change, that is a reason to abandon uh, the strategy or to, to reshape it. And then the fourth reason is crowding. So this is a, a viable strategy. It's got a good economic foundation. It has done well historically. People jump into the strategy, essentially bidding prices up, reducing expected returns uh, to the point that the strategy doesn't look like it's working. Okay, so that that's the fourth reason crowding is very real. Uh, we see this uh, all the time um, in terms of asset management in particular, where uh, an asset manager might take on too much capital. I guess by its nature, given that trend is trading multi-assets, definitely less susceptible to some of those crowding issues, or at least it doesn't seem like it's been susceptible to those crowding issues. You know, what do you think? The, the sort of uh, strategies uh, that are often crowded are like long, short, factor-like uh, strategies. Uh, and a trend strategy obviously can be long uh, or short. Uh, it does not have the same scale in terms of uh, the amount of capacity as uh, some other uh, strategies. And I believe that it could uh, become crowded. Uh, and indeed, what happens here is that, let's say there's an uptrend, everybody jumps into the uptrend. So, and, and, and the trade gets crowded. So what does that mean? Well, that means, as I said before, the price increases. So effectively, the price goes beyond its fundamental value. So what happens then? Well, there's another group of people that see that and that are pl basically playing the reversal. So, so with trend, there's this natural mechanism in there that once we exceed the fundamental value, somebody else is going to come in and actually cause a turning point. So I think that that's like the main reason that we see this. But it, if it was unrestricted, then of course, a trend could 
could cause prices to, and, and some people criticize trend for this, um, to go well beyond fundamental value because people are just buying as the price goes up. But I don't buy that at all uh, because there's another group of very smart traders out there that will detect if there's an overshoot or an undershoot and trade the other side. So, so I think that's the main reason when I talk about these long, short factor returns, there's no mechanism like that. So, so I think that the trend strategy is somewhat resilient to the overcrowding. Yeah, and I guess a differentiating thing with trend is that we've got a lot of live track records across trend managers for a very long time. But with live tracks, you get sharp ratios. And I think something that people occasionally mention is that sharp ratios on trend aren't particularly high over time. And I wonder if that's the best way to think about trend, because when you talk about it from a strategic point of view, probably sharp ratio isn't the best way to approach it if it's a non-correlated asset with positive returns over time. So this is a fundamental mistake that people make. Uh, and, and you see it sometimes where you look at the, the sharp ratios of different hedge fund styles. And you see some styles have a very high sharp ratio and other styles have a lower sharp ratio. And you might wonder, well, why, why doesn't everybody pile into the style that's got the higher sharp ratio? Well, the reason is that the sharp ratio, the, uh, <laughs> the denominator is a very narrow measure of risk and that's the volatility. And as soon as we're talking about anything that's got convexity, well, that goes beyond volatility. That has to do with the downside and the upside tails. So, so the reason that a hedge fund strategy might have a very high sharp ratio is that it's got negative skew. So or, or, or like big uh, downside risk. And, and you have to compensate investors for taking that type of risk. And then there's other strategies that have lower sharp ratios and people are still interested in those strategies because they've got positive skew or positive convexity and that's valuable. So, so I think that you need to take that into account. You just can't look at sharp ratios. And indeed I hear uh, from, from many people, oh, well, trend following strategies haven't done well for the last two years. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Haven't, haven't done well. So, well, they've underperformed the market uh, and they've got like a minus 2% return uh, last year and year before minus 3%. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, um, that is the wrong way to look at it. Because if you go back to the basic structure this is like a straddle, a long straddle. And you get your protection in the downside, you participate in the upside, and then every so often, when there's not a lot of volatility, you pay the premium. And the premium might be a minus 2% or a minus 3%. And, and we pay premiums all the time for positive convexity. You, you pay the premium for fire insurance on your house. So, so I think that it's like the wrong way to look at it. Another way 
uh, to look at it in terms of kind of the the academic uh, side of this is that you might have a strategy with positive convexity and often we try to uh, figure out what the alpha is of that strategy. And it's a big mistake just to say, okay, the strategy, um, here's the benchmark, market return, we estimate a beta and there's some alpha. Well, that just doesn't work uh, because that also assumes that the only things that matter are uh, the expected return and variance. So instead, to have a different benchmark, you would have, let's say, a market portfolio and then some options, like that straddle. And when you put the straddles in and then estimate the alpha, there's a much different story. And, uh, and that's the correct way to do it. If you're evaluating a nonlinear uh, strategy, then your benchmark has to have nonlinearities uh, in it also. So these are basic mistakes that uh, people may, and this, this goes back many years in my research program where I published a paper in the Journal of Finance in 2000 called Conditional Skewness in Asset Pricing Tests that basically made the case that we need to move away from the Markowitz classic 1952 Nobel winning uh, paper that showed the trade-off of expected return and variance. Indeed, Markowitz in the paper on page 92, there's a footnote where he recognizes, and this is remarkable, in 1952, he recognizes that his framework doesn't work if there is a preference for positive convexity. It's right there in the paper. Yet people ignore that. And for decades, we've been doing the same thing. Oh, what's the sharp ratio? Well, that's just not good enough. The world is nonlinear. The world is not normally distributed. Indeed, it's an exception to find something that's normally distributed. And on top of that, people have a preference for positively skewed outcomes. They do not like the negative uh, skew or that negative convexity. And, and again, you can see it in the data. You can see it, as I said, different hedge fund styles have different sharp ratios. And the reason they're different is because of the convexity differences. So this is really important. And, and of course, kind of circling back, a trend strategy is a type of strategy that produces that positive convexity. Yeah, I guess I can see the argument. If you want to have convexity, you pretty much want to pick assets with really high vol. And obviously, you know, crypto is a pretty good place to go after it. I suppose though, my takeaway from all of this is that in the DeFi world, there's just a lot more work for asset managers to do to get themselves set up for all these exchanges and all these different forms of trading. There is work to do and custody is a big issue. Uh, and there's work to do, but there's opportunity. You need to take that into account also. So think of the world of the future. Um, all assets will be tokenized. So stocks and bonds, commodities, everything tokenized. So what we think of as an ETF will be basically uh, a token of tokens. And then there'll be uh, strategies that will be systematic. So you deploy a contract 
that has got a set um, rule or, or a number of rules that automatically executes and does uh, active asset management within a contract. And it is a token also that you can buy. So this is, it, it provides so many opportunities in terms of the tokenization, in terms of efficiency in this space. Uh, when you execute a trade, you also settle it. There's no delay. It's the same thing. And the cost of trading uh, already, uh, we can see the decentralized exchanges have a cost of trading that's far less uh, for the liquid tokens than uh, so-called centralized uh, exchanges like, uh, for example, Coinbase or, or, or Binance. So there's a lot of opportunity in terms of efficiency. There's also a lot of opportunity in actually tokenizing assets that right now are relatively illiquid and making them liquid via tokenization. This allows the opportunity set for investors to expand. It allows investors to get a much more diversified portfolio and uh, and that's all good news. So uh, there, um, there will be benefits for investors, and this will provide very large opportunities for asset managers uh, to actually figure out all of these new uh, types of assets and how they fit into uh, portfolios. So I can tell you're excited about crypto, and, and I probably have another million questions that we could keep going on, but it's not today's topic. So if you're game, I'd say let's save that for the next podcast that we do. That would be great. Thanks for joining us today, Cam. And, and we'll look forward to chatting a bit more about DeFi in, in an episode in the pretty near future. And thanks to everyone taking the time to listen to this episode of Trendsetters. We have a few more coming up with some pretty interesting topics and look forward to you joining us again. Thank you for inviting me.